Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop titled Advances in the Treatment of Renal Cell Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort um, between many other cancer organizations, and because of that collaboration, we've been able to reach over 217 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, India, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And I also want to acknowledge that our program today is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Oncology, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. And we have really wonderful speakers on our program today. And before we begin with introducing our speakers, we're going to ask each of you to um, answer just a few questions uh, before, the pro before, I, before I do start with our speakers, um, just to get a sense of what you know um, at the outset of the program so that um, we really appreciate your doing this because it helps us to plan all of our future programs on this particular topic and other topics as well. So. Um, the first question I'm going to ask you is, on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand new treatment approaches for renal cell cancer. Again, 1 is the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of targeted cancer therapies for the treatment of renal cell cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know the importance of clinical trials for renal cell cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And just two more questions left. The next question is, I know how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for renal cell cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And our last question is, I know the role of the current standard of care for the treatment of renal cell cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in, in answering these questions. It really helps us to have a better sense of what you know as the program begins. It really helps us to know that very much, so thank you. And now it's my pleasure to just our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Pa Pavlos Misoul. And Dr. Misoul is going to address, um, is Assistant Professor, Department of Genitourinary Medical Oncology, Division of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Um, Misoul will be addressing an overview of renal cell cancer in the context of COVID-19 current standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches, targeted cancer therapies, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masao. 
thank you, thank you all for having me. So um, I'm pleased to give you guys um, an overview of kidney cancer um, and its various subtypes. So kidney cancer overall is 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 common as a cancer. It's the sixth most common cancer among um, U.S. men and the eighth most common cancer among um, women in the U.S. And it it tends to be a little bit more common in men than women, about 50 percent um, more common in men than women. And usually it will occur in, in individuals who are in their sixth decade to eighth decade of life, so average age of 60, 64 years old. But it can certainly happen in uh, much younger patients than that. And the way we usually think about um, kidney cancer, as with, mo- as with most cancers, is we can divide cancer into what we call localized kidney cancer, meaning it has been confined only to the kidney. Usually that's about 60% of kidney cancer cases. It will be confined only to the kidney, or it may have spread to um, some lymph nodes around um, the kidney um, that we can call regional disease instead of localized or what we call metastatic disease, stage four disease, is when it has um, spread to um, other organs, including more distant lymph nodes. That's about 20% of cases for the most common kidney cancers. And the an important concept to keep in mind when we're talking about kidney cancer is that it is not a single entity. There are many different subtypes of kidney cancer, and each one of them may be managed very differently than the others. So if you hear about a friend or family member or on the internet about how a specific kidney cancer was managed, then that might be vastly different than what is happening, you know, to you as an individual because you may have a completely different cancer. And so the most common kidney cancer is the one we call clear cell kidney cancer. That's 75% of all cases. And we call it clear cell kidney cancer because the cells look clear under the microscope. That's why it's called clear cell kidney cancer. And then the other 25% of cases is um, under the umbrella term non-clear cell kidney cancer because the cells do not look clear under the microscope. And under that umbrella term, that 25% of cases, there are many, many, many different subtypes like papillary kidney cancer or chromophobe kidney cancer or renal medullary kidney cancer, translocation kidney cancer, many, many, many different names for different subtypes. Each one requires a different management. And so in the context now of COVID-19, things have changed in a way, not drastically in how we manage and approach kidney cancer, but they still, you know, had to be changed in the sense that patients with cancer overall, not just kidney cancer, have been, without a doubt, disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic with high rates of severe outcomes and death higher rates in people with cancer versus those that do not have cancer. That's the reason why we are especially mindful and sensitive about this pandemic in oncology. Those of us who treat cancer, we're very, very careful making sure that our patients and their loved ones don't get infected um, with COVID-19. And similarly, exactly because um, we have to be so mindful about um, this this, um, uh, virus, the treatment decisions have been altered in some degree, uh, mainly because often there have been disruptions in care. Because we have to be so extra careful that we don't get our patients infected, we have to do many, many extra steps to prevent the infection And sometimes that can lead, for example, to elective surgeries being delayed or even canceled in some cases. So there have been those treatment disruptions that are in many ways, unfortunately, in many cases, inevitable so that we can minimize the risk of infection. Um, At the same time, some therapies like cytotoxic chemotherapy, that's the type of chemotherapy that we don't usually give for kidney cancer, for most kidney cancer subtypes, but we might for some of the rare ones. So cytotoxic chemotherapy, we have some evidence that it can increase the risk of complications if you have COVID-19. 
So that's an, uh, one other thing that we keep in mind. Other therapies, like what we call targeted therapies, I'm going to talk about it soon, or immunotherapies, we, don't, we haven't seen a clear signal that increase any risk if you get infected with COVID-19. So that's good news in a way for, for individuals with um, kidney cancer. Another thing that the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly changed in our practice is that unfortunately very often exactly because of this abundance of precaution that, you know, we want to make sure we're careful, very often loved ones of our patients cannot attend the visits, um, the patient visits, and they have to FaceTime, et cetera. That, 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 you know, is, is not ideal. I completely understand, but it's something that we often have to do exactly to minimize the spread of this virus. And the other thing that has certainly changed in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic is telemedicine. So in a way, that has been good news because it has incentivized us to improve our infrastructure and allow more telemedicine, more remote health care. But at the same time, that can be a double-edged sword because it can also lead to more fragmented care. So, you know, it, it, it's different when you see a patient face-to-face -face and you evaluate and do a clinical exam face-to-face. -face. This, this, you know, telemedicine can do a lot of things but cannot fully replicate that. So there are pros and cons that have happened with regards to that. And so the um, other concept that I wanted to discuss about, obviously, that is of interest to, to, to patients is therapy. How do we treat kidney cancer? And so in, in oncology in general, we have two broad types of therapies or strategies. The first one is what we call localized or local therapies. And those are the types of therapies that address the cancer in a specific area. So, for example, surgery is a localized therapy. You cut out the cancer in that specific area, or you can irradiate it, you zap it, you do radiation in a specific area, or you can burn it, or you can freeze it. All of these are localized therapies. And then you, we have the other broad type of therapies that are called systemic therapies, and that comes from the word system. Those are the kinds of therapies that go all over your body to recognize and kill cancer cells. And so, as you can imagine, if you have a more localized cancer, as I described earlier, more localized kidney cancer, localized therapies may be our main mode of therapies. Um, but in cancers that may be more extensive or in other particular situations, we might decide to incorporate systemic therapies as our primary option or our only option. And so, with regards now to systemic therapies, the therapies that go all over your body, the good news for the kidney cancer field is that, you know, the, 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 the options, the portfolio of systemic therapies that we have available right now is much, much larger than it was before. From 1992 until 2005, we only had one systemic therapy, high-dose IL-2, um, approved by the FDA for kidney cancer overall. And it wouldn't work against most other kidney cancers. It only worked in some clear cell kidney cancer cases. But from 2005 until today, we've had many more, more than 10 systemic therapy options that have been approved, especially in the past few years. So a lot of the systemic therapies that we may now prefer for patients with uh, most kidney cancers um, were not available even five years ago. And even a few months ago, we had uh, a few other options approved. So there is a lot of, uh, of growth there. And, 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 and when it comes to systemic therapies, there are three major types of systemic therapies that are of importance to patients with kidney cancer. Those are the one, the three ones to remember. The first one is what we call chemotherapy, classic old school chemotherapy that everybody knows about. That's the type of therapy that does not work against the vast majority of kidney cancers. Now it can uh, for some kidney cancers. That's why I mentioned that it's important to know what kidney cancer you have. And in some situations, it can help, but the vast majority of patients with kidney cancer will not receive chemotherapy, but they will receive, if they need to, the two other types of systemic therapies. The first one is immunotherapies, and those are the types of therapies that, that stimulate your body's immune system to recognize and kill cancer cells. So that's a very different concept than chemotherapy. See, this one stimulates your immune system. They work really well for a lot of kidney cancers. And then the third one, the one that, you know, I was asked to focus 
um, a bit as well and highlight is what we call targeted therapies. Now, those usually come in the form of pills. Immunotherapies are usually given through an IV. Targeted therapies come in the form of pills. Not always, but in most cases. And those pills contain drugs that are designed to target, hence the name targeted therapies, certain molecules that the kidney cancer cells express. And so there have been a lot of great options of targeted therapies approved nowadays for kidney cancer. And one of the things, now that you know that targeted therapies and immunotherapies can be very helpful against most kidney cancers, and so those are our two main systemic therapies, Sometimes we might give only pure immunotherapy, or sometimes we might give purely targeted therapies, or sometimes we may combine them. And so some patients already may know that, you know, they might be on a combination of an IV immunotherapy plus a pill, which is most often a targeted therapy. And it's all context dependent, depending on the situation, depending on its individual patient and the exact kidney cancer that they have that we choose between those um, tools that we have in our toolbox nowadays. And so the targeted therapies, usually what they target in kidney cancer is molecules that produce blood vessels and feed the cancer cells. And this is why those targeted therapies can have side effects that are associated with the blood vessels, like they increase your blood pressure, they affect the healing of wounds and, and, and side effects like that. Other side effects can be fatigue or diarrhea or um, other, uh, uh, other issues that may affect quality of life. And, and, and talking about quality of life, the last thing that I was asked to, to highlight is what are the key questions to ask the healthcare team about quality of life concerns? And so this is, I think, a, 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 an important concept because, you know, nobody certainly, you know, gets a medal, a medal by, you know, being in pain or by suffering. A key thing in oncology is to make sure to highlight and emphasize quality of life. You're not supposed to suffer when you have cancer. If that's happening, then we're failing. And so the key, key questions that patients have and I think can affect quality of life is, first, first of all, what is my prognosis? And I think that this is an important question, and it's very individualized. I cannot give, you know, broad percentages and probabilities that apply to anybody. And if you go on the Internet, it will probably be more confusing than helpful. You have to ask your oncologist, you know, what do you think is going to happen to me in the next 6 to 12 months? And I'm highlighting the next 6 to 12 months more because in some cases, especially with metastatic kidney cancer, meaning the one that has spread to different areas, it can be very hard to accurately predict what's going to happen in three to five years. This is why we, we try to make more accurate predictions about what's going to happen in six to 12 months. That helps a lot with patients so that they can plan their lives accordingly. And then the other thing that's important with quality of life is what are the side effects of my therapies? Whatever therapies you're going to receive, if you're well prepared and you manage your, the side effects, and also the other corollaries and important things, and I know that this will be discussed immediately later, things like nutrition, for example, those are important, you know, what should I eat, what should I avoid? Those are important quality of life concerns that it's good to ask your doctor. Other things, you know, that you need to ask your doctor and it helps is, what are my expectations with regards to, you know, imaging studies? How often and what images am I going to be doing in the next, you know, year or so? And how often the visits are going to be just so that you can plan your life accordingly? And, you know, another question that I have found that, 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 that helps a lot with navigating things is, you know, what you can ask your physician, well, what would you do, especially if a physician is, ha or if you are having a hard time, you know, making a decision for yourself, you can ask, what would you do if I was, let's say, your family member? And we all try, you know, to think along these lines, but sometimes it can help, you know, um, um, guide you when, when you ask a question like that. And with that said, um, I'll be happy to ha answer any questions afterwards and, 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 and give the um, talk now to the, to the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nassau. That was really excellent, really, uh, really wonderfully setting the context of today's program. And I, I particularly uh, identifying the different treatments, but also I'm really making a call out for people getting their um, any side effect, any symptom, any pain, any discomfort really addressed by the healthcare team. So that was really very, very helpful um, to, to stress that. And I know it's going to come up again as well. It's just such an important theme. So thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. 
And our next speaker is Dr. Chatham Ramamurthy and Dr. Dr. Chasen Renamurthy and Dr. Memamurthy will be uh, is a medical oncologist, genital urinary oncology clinic, urology department, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Dr. Renamurthy will be addressing updates on clinical trials in the context of COVID-19, how research contributes to your treatment options, managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19, the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and communicating with your healthcare team, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and making your list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Raman Murthy. Thank you, Carolyn. I uh, hope everybody can hear me well. Thank you for the opportunity to, to speak today to you guys about these different topics. Um, and great to hear uh, Dr. Massal's introduction about kidney cancer, the state of kidney cancer right now. And as you heard from him, it's really a, a very exciting time uh, in terms of kidney cancer research and kidney cancer treatment options. And the engine for that are, are clinical trials, uh, and those were certainly impacted by COVID-19 uh, and continue to be in some ways, um, maybe even in a positive direction more recently. Um, so in the early months of the pandemic, March, April of last year in the United States at least, uh, we definitely saw a pretty significant slowdown in clinical trials and clinical trial enrollments. Uh, because of a lot of the uncertainty surrounding the virus, um, bringing patients into clinic to consent for studies, um, and across the board nationally at all cancer centers, I think there was a slowdown uh, in clinical trial enrollments. But I'm very pleased to say that the healthcare system has adapted very, very rapidly through the course of this pandemic. And I would say at many places, including our site, and I know for sure at uh, MD Anderson, where Dr. Masal is, things are really kind of getting back to full force operations. Um, and a lot of that has come with actually adapting uh, clinical trials in some ways. Um, so making accommodations uh, to allow telemedicine types of appointments, even for monitoring on clinical trials uh, in appropriate circumstances. Um, doing things uh, that allow for and make accommodations so that people can receive the COVID vaccinations uh, that have come out safely um, uh, in the context of a clinical trial as well and continue to participate in, in trials, uh, even though they may be getting vaccinated or even have uh, the COVID infection themselves. Uh, and also, you know, an area where certain clinical trials have uh, developed are really looking at COVID-specific studies to understand the impact that this virus and other ones that we may encounter in the future have on how cancer treatments work, how cancer progresses, uh, and how the body, while on cancer treatment, for example, may respond to vaccines and how efficacious vaccines may be in people who are also dealing with cancers like kidney cancer. Uh, and I have been really, really pleased to see how uh, the entire research community has really made it a mission to go back to operating uh, clinical trials uh, as we were before, but doing so um, even with some modifications to uh, take into account the, the current realities of healthcare. Uh, in the COVID-19 era. And it's so important because, uh, as I mentioned, um, these clinical trials are how we begin to expand treatment options for patients um, and uh, lead to these new FDA approvals um, in the United States and, you know, internationally at, at, uh, through other regulatory bodies. Um, and really, I would say across phases of trials, um, the, the key about clinical trials is that they are expanding options um, because the way that we design clinical trials and offer patients trials, the priority is always maximizing options for current and future patients uh, without doing harm and, and minimizing risk. 
so one of the trepidations that people may have, one of the concerns uh, about participating in a clinical trial is I have metastatic kidney cancer. Am I going to get put on a placebo? And I will tell you that no uh, clinical trial that uh, we as investigators and, and doctors who treat patients with kidney cancer would ever offer a patient a clinical trial that would just um, uh, involve a, a placebo when there are active treatment options that we can uh, potentially give. And so um, it's an understanding that clinical trials are designed so that people are always getting uh, uh, things that are ethical and treatments that in the future may really revolutionize the treatment landscape. Um, and the story of renal cell cancer over the past decade, as Dr. Masal said, has been of treatment expansion. Multiple new agents or combinations of agents uh, have been approved even over this past year, despite everything that has been going on um, with the pandemic. And it's uh, due to the commitment of and leap of faith that patients take uh, when they enroll on clinical trials uh, in combination with all the investigators and, and everybody who uh, is trying to move the science um, of kidney cancer treatment forward. Um, so one of the things to sort of shift gears from clinical trials uh, that we really need to be mindful of are how is COVID-19 really affecting uh, the symptom management side effects of uh, kidney cancer treatments um, and how we're approaching them. Um, you know, one thing that I will stress uh, that many of us are encouraging is, uh, is to do vaccination um, against COVID because I think um, we do know that uh, people who are receiving certain anti-cancer treatments or who have cancer are at increased risk for uh, more severe COVID illness. And discussing with your providers about the best timing to get vaccinated is definitely something that's important. But avoiding uh, COVID infection is, is definitely something that uh, we think is a priority during this time uh, when we are dealing with this pandemic. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, we begin to see declines in, in the risk of COVID-19 infection as more people get vaccinated uh, across the world. Be mindful of symptoms um, uh, that may be related either to the cancer uh, or cancer treatment, but also to COVID as well. Um, and so uh, making sure uh, that you are keeping your treatment team in the loop about uh, any kinds of new symptoms that you're having is important uh, because uh, appropriate testing for COVID and appropriate management of your cancer symptoms um, or treatment related symptoms is as paramount as ever. Uh, and really don't hesitate to contact or see your treatment team. Um, I think uh, certainly telemedicine uh, has become really important during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is one way to access providers. But I also want to reassure people that um, with the precautions that we're taking in the clinics and in the hospitals, uh, it is increasingly clear that um, we, we can safely operate even in this COVID-19 uh, era. And uh, sometimes it really is good to see your treatment team face-to-face -face, uh, for communication reasons and also so that you can be examined um, and triaged appropriately. Um, the risks of acquiring COVID within the healthcare uh, sort of system um, has been so far shown to be actually pretty rare. It's really the um, uh, situations outside of social gatherings and things that seem to um, be driving most of the, of the infections. And so I'd, always you're weighing risks and benefits of anything, but uh, making sure that uh, you are seeing your doctors uh, when appropriate is is clearly important in terms of managing side effects of, of cancer treatment um, and also uh, any symptoms um, that you may be having related to the cancer itself. Um, in that context, sort of how has COVID-19 um, affected 
telehealth and telemedicine, uh, I think that's been the one potential positive impact of COVID on the healthcare system um, in that it's led to rapid adoption of these newer technologies uh, to really help us reach patients in uh, in a different way um, that can be very convenient at times um, and also can improve access uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so COVID uh, has affected the healthcare workforce in a significant way, and uh, especially um, in the first six months of the pandemic, um, there were lots of concerns about having people on site, um, including people from call centers, ancillary staff, uh, even providers. And so that uh, led to the need to uh, establish some of these ways of uh, communicating with patients um, through telemedicine types of encounters. Um, and uh, this is a way that has been able to keep people safe by doing video visits or telephone visits um, with people. Um, and as I mentioned, also, even sometimes with clinical trials, there are allowances now to substitute some of those previously in-person appointments um, with uh, sometimes some uh, video types of visits um, and lab monitoring closer to home. Um, and uh, I think that that uh, has also enabled potentially for uh, people who are in areas where it may have been difficult to travel to go see seek a, a second opinion or an expert opinion from somebody like Dr. Massal um, uh, to be able to do that by setting up these types of telemedicine types of appointments. So um, that may be one lasting positive impact that going through this pandemic uh, has on us. Um, one thing that a lot of my patients um, are utilizing more so now than, than before um, are the uh, uh, messages through the patient portals to, to contact our team, our nurses or schedulers uh, to make some of the coordination of care uh, and communication about side effects a lot more uh, straightforward and simple um, uh, rather than uh, calling in to the cancer center um, and things like that. So different ways of communicating with people. Um, and I think that we've just gotten more adept at the technology um, than we were before this pandemic started. Uh, and to uh, close the topic that I am going to say is as we're using telehealth and telemedicine, uh, it's really important to uh, prepare for these visits um, in, in slightly different ways than you would potentially for an in-person visit. Um, making a list of questions is is really helpful so that you're utilizing your time most appropriately with your providers. Um, it allows you with many of these telemedicine types of encounters to log in uh, in advance of the visit and fill out some of the things um, that the providers may ask you about. So your medication lists, your allergies, your past medical history and past surgical history. And having all that information already populated can actually help uh, save some time uh, during the visit potentially um, and bring to light some things that uh, maybe the providing team may not ask you about. Um, so uh, I think uh, enables us to capture information in a new way. And so I certainly encourage doing that before. Um, all technology comes with some, uh, with some hassles at times. Um, and I've uh, certainly been through my share of video visits where the video hasn't been working or the audio hasn't been working. Um, and a lot of the times making sure that you have a good uh, telephone or uh, internet connection uh, and are in a place where it's reliable is really important before your visits so that you avoid the frustrations of uh, dropped calls and things. And doing the test run of the technology can also be really helpful as well. Um, and all I think all of these uh, different platforms that uh, we're using to do video visits um, do allow for that. And so that's something I recommend. And just like with in-person visits, um, uh, having a caregiver present at the time of a telehealth visit is, is really important. It's always good to have a second set of ears um, to, to listen in, 
um, or somebody who knows what you're going through to be able to fill in some gaps um, in the in the conversation. So um, that's something that you know we may not be able to do as much in person because we have to make limitations on the number of people who are you know coming to in-person visits. But if you do have that telemedicine type of visit, uh, it's a good uh, idea to have people with you just as you would um, prior to COVID in uh, your in-person types of visits. Um, the last thing I will say is sometimes with these video uh, visits, the picture resolution isn't always the greatest. Um, and so if there are things that you want to show your providers, um, a rash or uh, something that has, that has popped up that um, you think would help from looking at visually, you can take pictures and share your screen uh, and do things to to sort of bridge that gap in information uh, that that we may not be getting all the information since we're not physically seeing you. So there are ways that we can utilize the technology to to mimic an in-person encounter as much as possible and, and get the information across. Um, and of course, the key is getting your answers, your questions answered um, throughout the process. Um, and so making sure that you ask everything and are as thorough as possible uh, throughout these things, even though you may not be face-to-face, -face, is, is really key. So with that, I will um, hand it over uh, to the next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ramavarthi. That was really wonderful. It's an excellent presentation and really um, covering a lot of key issues that people um, really need help with. And so I think that there will definitely be questions for you during the Q&A as well. You also addressed um, the whole issue of com the person's comfort during treatment in terms of side effects, symptoms, um, pain, that that all needs to be addressed. And also the use of the new um, telemedicine, telehealth um, uh, appointments to really access care um, between physical appointments. So thank you very much. Excellent. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and Ms. Bearden is going to be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm happy to be part of today's presentation. Um, so nutrition is um, an essential part of our body's functioning in the method that it's intended to, um, tolerating treatment, giving us the energy um, to do the things that we enjoy. And so um, as your treatment is going forward, um, you may find that you respond differently to food, that food doesn't taste the same, that food doesn't um, respond the same as it has in the past based on your unique needs. Um, and in that case, it's so important that you let your healthcare team know. Um, I get a lot of times from patients, oh, I have weight to lose, I'm overweight, I'm not worried about it. And weight loss is actually very important, um, very serious whenever you're going through cancer treatment. Oftentimes our body utilizes muscle as an energy source over fat. And muscle is so important in giving us the energy to walk and to breathe and to um, to chew, to talk, um, all of the things that we kind of take for granted. But as you're losing weight, you might notice that some of these things can decline in your ability to do um, them in the way that you did before. And so um, weight loss is something that I want you to talk about with your healthcare team and not just blow it off like um, so many in, in our society, we have this idea that, oh, it's okay, I, I can lose weight, but there's conditions where you don't want to, to do that necessarily. So during your cancer treatment, um, you may go through some specific side effects, some things that are impacting your eating and your nutrition. Um, some common ones might be things like a dry mouth. You may have a change in your taste. You may even have sores in your mouth, a decrease in appetite. GI changes, diarrhea or constipation, and you may have increased fatigue. And so if you notice that some of these things are happening, ask to speak with your dietitian. Um, she can help formulate a plan based on your unique needs. Um, everybody comes in with their own special circumstances. And so not one diet is the same for everybody. 
Um, and so it's important that you know what you need to be strong and get through your treatment as, um, as well as possible. So um, as long as we're talking about nutrition, we also need to talk about hydration. Hydration is very important. Oftentimes it gets left off the table because we're focusing on are you eating enough, getting enough in. And hydration is almost just as important. Um, when you're dehydrated, um, it can actually cause changes in blood pressure. It can cause you to feel dizzy, nauseated. It can actually um, impact GI function. You may become more constipated. Um, so it's very important that you're also getting in enough fluid. And fluids are anything that's a liquid at room temperature. So it includes things like water, milk, sports drinks. Um, and on average, you know, just as a general guideline, um, most folks need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, there might be times in your treatment where fluid is part of the conversation and it may look a little different, but in general, that's about what most folks need. So some treatments can require even more fluid. So if you're taking a treatment that um, maybe is you're having issues with diarrhea, we Maybe talking a little bit more about, okay, we need to replace that fluid. We need to increase your fluid intake. So, um, again, everybody's unique, and so it's so important that you are in communication with your healthcare team. But some of the side effects, um, just to be really mindful of, um, kind of that I briefly reviewed a little while ago, but changes in your ability to eat and tolerate your diet, keep track of that. Um, it can change throughout your treatment, and so your needs can also change throughout your treatment. Um, I encourage patients all the time, keep a record. If you find that something's bothering you, write it down. Maybe we just need to cut it out for a little bit. Maybe we need to talk about how to modify it to make it work better for you. And so um, if things aren't tasting the way that they should or don't have any taste, that's something else that your dietitian can talk with you about um, based on what you're going through. And then um, if you're having any pain with eating, sometimes it's about avoiding certain foods that can be sharp or really spicy or very salty that can sometimes aggravate spots in your mouth that might be sensitive. Um, and weight, um, noticing that as well. Um, each time you go into the doctor, they'll usually weigh you, and so it's important for you to be mindful of that so it can be part of your conversation with your healthcare team as well. Um, there are so many components um, to your cancer care that are so important, and there's a, a team of people to help support you. Um, it's so important that you know how to access them, that you communicate with your physician. Um, when you're having a challenging issue, request to speak with a dietitian if you um, if you'd like to. We're here to help support you in any way that we can. And there's so many of us dedicated just to you and ensuring your um, care is as optimal as possible. So in closing, um, I'm going to thank you all for letting me be part of today's workshop, and I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really excellent. And always always these helpful tips can make all the difference in the world to people in terms of their being able to eat and quality of life uh, issues. So thank you so much. And I'm going to say a few words about cancer care services. Um, and so I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education Training with Cancer Care. And Cancer Care is a national organization. It was founded in 1944, so it's 77 years old. It's been around a long time. And our services have grown significantly, um, of course, over these many years. And we um, we have what we call a hope line, 1-800-813-4673, which many people use in the United States to call cancer care. Um, they are staffed by our oncology social workers who really are there to answer the phone. And um, they're all on they're all, um, as a whole, we have about 35 oncology social workers, and they're really there to pick up the phone when it rings and to address your question and, um, and concern. And they offer support. And many people just find those calls a bit of a lifeline for them, really, to be able to speak to someone. Monday through Friday um, during business hours, and people just find it very reassuring. In addition to that, we offer... Um, case management services, a whole other team of staff who provide those services. So if you need something and let's say we can't provide it, we will connect you 
to that service that you need. And we won't just give you a list of places to call. We will actually see to it that we virtually take you there by phone, call you on the phone, whatever we can do to connect you so we are sure that whatever the need was, your need was met. Sometimes it's something that you may need in your local community. Sometimes it may be another national program that's available for you. So we will actually, that's a very important service that we've just instituted this past year. It's been very helpful to people. Now, in addition to that, we also offer online support groups. So um, for people who like an online support group, remember they're 24 hours a day. You can post any time of the day or night. Our staff, our oncology social workers, do facilitate them during business hours, so they will be checking all the time your posts and, and, and commenting, being very present. Um, so that, um, and we do, so that's another service that we, you can access. And this, these programs are available for both um, people who are living with all types of cancer or in the specific types of cancer. We also offer specific uh, groups for people with cancer. We also, um, with particular types of cancer, we also offer um, help for caregivers and for young adults and for middle-aged adults and older adults. And um, we also have a program which help children, help families with children to understand cancer in the family. So a, a host of different services that are available as an online support group. And many of these topics come up in all the groups, but nevertheless, they are incredibly helpful to people um, to, to have this kind of access to a, to a large group of people to, um, you know, to, to communicate with. I think during this period of the pandemic, um, people have had such a sense of Really, um, really, this um, we we are physically distancing. We've been all it's all been suggested all of us that we maintain physical distance from each other. But the social connectedness is really important, and all of these services help to keep people connected, whether it be to an organization, um, whether it be to a support group. Those all those things are very important. Um, so, um, and then in addition to that, we do offer these workshops and we do offer a, a whole lot of different publications as well that you can access on, we have them on renal cell cancer, on every type of cancer and on every, on also managing discomforts of cancer, pain. So we have a lot of different, for caregivers, so all different booklets like that are available as well. So with that being said, before I bring our speakers on for Q&A, we're just going to ask you just a few questions and then we'll take we'll go right into the Q&A so I'm going to bring you to our um, our next just set of brief questions um, and I'm going to begin with the this is the next this is our, our, our first question of this set as a result of what I learned in this workshop I have greater knowledge of new treatment approaches for renal cell cancer and again one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating And then the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about targeted cancer therapies for the treatment of renal cell cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for renal cell cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then we just have two more questions and we'll go right into the Q&A. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19. The last question is, as a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in the current standard of care for the treatment of renal cell cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us to get a much better 
understanding and appreciation of what you know coming into the program and what you've learned um, during the program. So it's very helpful to us as we plan future programs. So your feedback is really essential. It's a wonderful way to, to have this communication. And now we're going to um, move on to our questions and answers. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible so that um, Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And uh, Michelle, um, we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by asking a question. And we have a question um, from one of our online uh, participants. We have a lot of questions for, for our online from our online participants. Um, so I'm going to start with this first question. How do I prepare for, this will be for Dr. Masal, how do I prepare for treatment for renal cell cancer? This is a, a, a great question. It depends on the treatment. So obviously, so for example, if it's going to be a localized treatment like a surgery, then your surgeon will let you know what kind of things you need to do, depending on what other illnesses you may have. For example, you know, they may need you to be evaluated by cardiologists, a pulmonologist looking at the function of the lungs, etc. Um, other times we might incorporate things like radiation therapy and other, again, type of localized therapy, in which case, depending on where we're going to use and how we're going to use the radiation, the radiation oncologists, these are specialists that are that give radiation therapies can, can help prepare you for that. And then with regards to the systemic therapies, if those are necessary, it absolutely depends on the type of systemic therapy. So, for example, different chemotherapies, um, again, as I mentioned, those are rarely used, but they can certainly be for some subtypes and in certain contexts. Um, you know, when, the, when you receive those chemotherapies, sometimes some of them, can cause nausea or other side effects for the next few days potentially. And so your oncologist, those are the medical oncologists, those are the ones that prescribe systemic therapies, can prepare you for that. And, and with regards to immunotherapies and targeted therapies, again, the medical oncologist, depending on the context, will give you very specific instructions along with the rest of the clinical team, the nurses, nurse practitioners or um, um, patient, um, 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 physician assistants will help out with this. Excellent. Thank you so much. And we have um, a question in front of our um, telephone participants. Um, Michelle? And our first question comes from the line of Jeffrey C. Your line is open. Yes. Hi. I'm uh, uh, doing some target therapy with Wenvima and uh, I want to increase my my stamina. I have a lot of fatigue, and I wanted to take an antidepressant to elevate my mood and give me more stamina, but none of the SSRIs uh, are recommended because of cardiovascular events. What can I use? Well, thank you for that question, um, and um, Jeffrey and um, Dr. Um, Rama Murthy, would you want to address that question in a general way? And then, of course, Jeffrey will go back to your treating healthcare team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a good question, and I think uh, highlights an important sort of broader uh, consideration, which are drug-drug uh, interactions. And so uh, we need to be very mindful of those um, and find uh, medicine that uh, does not have significant uh, adverse reactions with with the anti-cancer treatment that you're on. And usually we're able to find some uh, additional medicines if it is uh, not in the exact class of SSRIs, for example. So that's something uh, I would direct to potentially uh, your treatment team's pharmacist or to uh, your provider as well. Um, but uh, there are a lot of differences even within SSRIs and different antidepressants potentially that can be useful. Um, and then speaking to, to fatigue um, and, and energy level, uh, both cancer and cancer treatments, particularly with kidney cancer, um, 
are associated with, with significant fatigue. And one of the clear things that has really been shown to improve cancer treatment-related fatigue or cancer-related fatigue is increasing the amount of uh, exercise and activity level that you are doing. Um, and I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive to say, I'm tired, but then you're asking me to exercise. But gradual um, improvements in your activity level can actually then lead to this really positive feedback loop of, of even more energy. Um, and so uh, sometimes supervised physical activity um, with a physical therapist can be a good jump starting point. So that's also something to consider. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and um, and we have another question um, for um, uh, for um, Ms. Bearden. Um, so I recently finished treatment for renal cell cancer, but as a result, I have poor kidney function. Will I have to make any dietary changes because of it? Okay. This is this is a question that. It can answer answer very generally. Um, it depends on the level of function that your kidney is um, is performing. Um, sometimes there can be some modifications in your diet for certain things like sodium, um, potassium protein, fluid, just depending on how much um, your your kidneys filtering and getting out of your system. So, yes, there could be potentially a specialized diet that you would need to follow based on that, um, but definitely talking with your healthcare team because it's, it's going to be unique to where you are with your kidney function um, on how much any of those, if any, would need to be um, restricted or reduced. Um, so definitely talking with them is important. And actually, a lot of these questions really raise the whole issue of really going back to your healthcare team. So it's a good, this is a good place to try out a question because then you can take it back to your healthcare team and you're getting validity that indeed these are good questions. These are great questions. And indeed that you can now, um, they're, they're fine questions to ask your healthcare team. So I think that's, um, that often happens on our programs that actually, um, um, that, you know, having a chance to ask it here then empowers you to then ask it to your healthcare team. So, so it's, uh, I appreciate all of you doing asking these really great questions. Um, um, so another question that, um, and this would be uh, for Dr. Um, Masao, um, what is the recommendation, what is recommended first-line immunotherapy combination treatment for a patient who is in the favorable category? Ah, what a beautiful question. Um, and this is, you know, one of the reasons why um, some oncologists like us, you know, just focus on, on treating only patients with kidney cancer. Um, there are many, many different um, reasons why I would choose, or rather kidney cancer oncologists will choose one immunotherapy regimen, even in favorable risk versus another. So it's very, very patient-specific. Um, it's something that, you know, there is a lot of discussion, and it's an evolving uh, understanding, because um, the, the nice thing is that every year we have more immunotherapy options available to us. And so it's becoming more and more complex to decide um, what to recommend, even for a favorable risk patient, if we are to even recommend immunotherapy. And it's a good thing that it's becoming more complex because it's, it's, we, have, we have more options. So um, I wish I could tell you, you know, a cookbook answer of, oh, yeah, take this. Um, it is something that is very, very patient-specific, and it's a good thing that it's patient-specific. Um, one of the things that we always take into account is um, that do patients have, for example, a history of autoimmune diseases? So if you have a history of certain severe autoimmune diseases, we might be less inclined to give stronger immunotherapies or immunotherapies at all. The other, again, other illnesses that the patient may have play a big role. So, for example, depending on how well your kidney function is, that can change things. Some patients, for example, may have a history of a transplant, a kidney transplant or any other transplant. That can change things drastically. 
Um, some people may have certain illnesses that may make it hard to tolerate targeted therapies in combination with immunotherapy. So that might change things. In that case, you might choose an immunotherapy combination that will not include targeted therapies or specific targeted therapies because each targeted therapy also can have specific side effects. And the last thing that is also crucial when choosing is what does the specific patient want and value more with regards to potential side effects. And that's also another key thing. And that's why those decisions are so individualized. Excellent. Well, these are really fantastic questions. I have to say this is an extraordinary group today on our call. I really want to thank everyone. This question, this will probably be our last question. This is for Dr. Rema Murthy. Um, what can, kind of symptoms can a cancer cause as it progresses, and how do we distinguish that from the side effects of treatments? And if you could address this question, I guess, in a general way, Dr. Ramamurthy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question and a very tricky one to answer. Uh, I think it is a very, very individualized thing depending on uh, where the cancer uh, has involved the uh, body um, where it may have spread. You know, the classic symptoms of kidney cancer are blood in the urine and uh, pain in the side in the flank region. Um, but uh, many people don't have any of those symptoms even when they're presenting with localized kidney cancer. And so it, the symptom spectrum is just extremely variable depending on a lot of different factors. Uh, and it gets even trickier to tease out when we start treatments um, that may affect appetite, that may affect uh, taste, that may affect uh, bowel side effects. And so um, there, it's a tricky thing to, to tease out sometimes. Um, and one of the ways that we can help to figure things out uh, uh, is by giving short treatment breaks if that's feasible. That's one way to, to try to figure out what may be related to, to treatment. Um, but uh, it is uh, something that is just important to discuss always with your providers to see what types of strategies there may be to figure, figure out that really tricky question. Excellent. Thank you. These have been phenomenal questions, and, and now you all can go back to your treating health care team and ask them these questions too, and um, it's really, um, this is a great audience, wonderful participation, I have to say, and um, so um, wonderful participants and wonderful speakers as well. Um, I, um, I do recognize that there are many more questions in queue, and um, so um, I, before before we conclude the Q&A portion, I'm going to ask each of our speakers if they would um, provide just a takeaway from today's program, um, just a sentence or two about what you'd like people to take away from the program today. So I'm going to start with Dr. Bissell. Yeah, the takeaway would be this is an exciting time for kidney cancer and particularly for, for patients with metastatic kidney cancer in the sense that we have um, a lot of advancement in systemic therapies, but we still need to keep moving the field forward and um, continue doing research so that one day we will be able to cure 100% of our patients. That's number one. The number two is, again, I really want to highlight it's different kidney cancer and its um, patient is unique and its kidney cancer subtype is treated differently. And so it's very, very important that you know your exact diagnosis of what type of kidney cancer you specifically have. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks very much. Fantastic. And Dr. Ramavarthi? So uh, I think we're living through sort of an unprecedented pan pandemic globally. Uh, and during these times, it's uh, never been as important to keep your providers and treatment team uh, informed of how you're doing. Uh, don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Uh, that's why we're all here to take the best care of you possible. Um, and uh, you communicating with your treatment team is, is really the foundation of that. So uh, COVID, COVID is there, but we're here to, we're here to help. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. And Ms. Pearden? Well, you know, echoing, of course, everything that we've heard so far, but um, 
just remember that no issue is too small to bring to your healthcare team. And utilizing all members of your healthcare team, we're here to support you. There's a big group of us. Um, just, you know, let your physician know the challenges that you're having and they can help in connecting you with, um, with all the different healthcare providers. Um, nutrition is an important part of it. It's part of your treatment plan, just like your treatment is, your uh, immunotherapy or chemotherapy or radiation or surgery. In order to be successful throughout your treatment, it's very important that you keep in mind that nourishing yourself is absolutely essential. Um, so we're here to help support you and just um, reach out to all of us. We're here for you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, I, again, um, this has been a remarkable program, and I, I want to acknowledge that there are many more questions in queue, um, that you've gotten um, a solid base of information from our speakers today. And for many of you who had a chance to ask a question, or for those of you who still have questions that you didn't get to ask, or for those of you who've learned, we hope you've learned something today, that you want to take, take everything back to your treating healthcare team. And they will then um, be able to, of course, tailor the, the answer to your specific situation. Uh, if you've heard nothing else on the program today, we do want you to always keep in touch with the healthcare team. Anything that is troubling you, call their offices. Set up a telehealth appointment. Set up a, a real-time appointment to you go to the center. Um, you determine that with your healthcare team. Also, um, as we conclude today, um, I would not want anyone to feel alone in coping with renal cell cancer, any type of cancer. Um, I want you to know that you're now part of the community of support, and we're all here to help you. And Cancer Care is but one of many organizations out there that helps, and um, you all have um, access to cancer care, but there are, we will also provide you access to so many other organizations that can be of help to you. And your healthcare team, we never want to sidestep your healthcare team. They are in, invaluable to all of you. I think all of our speakers have said that. The healthcare team consists of so many different members of that team that can be of help to you. So again, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.